the teaching today is on redeem the redeemed and living the redeemed life. Uh, we've been in Isaiah chapter 44, the 6th and the 24th verse speaks of our Redeemer. He says, the 6th verse says, Thus saith the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last, and beside me there is no God. 24th verse says, Thus saith the Lord thy Redeemer, and he that formed thee from the womb. I am the Lord that maketh all things, that stretcheth forth the heavens alone, that spreadeth abroad the earth by myself. We have several times him speaking as the Redeemer. Now as a Redeemer, he's the one that brought us back. The Lord had given us to him. In the, before the foundations of the world. So he said none of those that the Father would had given him would be lost. He came on a mission, and his blood was the ransom price. He gave his life for us. He shed his blood for us to redeem us. He bought us back. He ransomed our life. We were in hostage to death. All of us were sentenced to death. We came in the world with a death sentence on us, we were already condemned. We were dead in trespasses and sins. Now, as our Redeemer, we are the redeemed. We are the redeemed. There's a process of redemption that's ongoing, but he had redeemed us. In other words, placed us back in right standing with God. He put us back. He justified us and put us back in the right track. And verse 22 to 23 says, I have blotted out as a thick cloud thy transgressions, and as a cloud thy sins return unto me. For I have redeemed thee. So as atonement, he was the perpetuation for our sins. All of our transgressions, everything that was against us, his sinless life, his the blood, the actual life of Christ. And like I was telling you a week or two ago, a lot of us don't focus on the actual life that was lived of Jesus Christ. There is the death, burial, and resurrection, but the life that he lived, this sinless life, was why he was able to pay the purchase price because he didn't have to die for himself because He was free from sin. Every man falls short of the glory of God. For all have sinned and fall short. Except for him as a man. He experienced this life. So that way he was able to be a substitution for us. He died in our place. If if one of us died for the other one or whatever, we could die for the other person because we have to pay with our own life for our own sin, for the wages of sin is death. So he says, Sing, O ye heavens, verse 23, For the Lord had done it. Shout, ye lower parts of the earth. Break forth into singing, ye mountains, O forest, and every tree therein. For the Lord had redeemed Jacob and glorified himself in Israel. So we are to give him the glory because he had finished the work that was given to him. Salvation is complete in Christ. In the book of Exodus, we hear a little bit more about this being redeemed. We were in Egypt, in sin, in slavery. We were in bondage in Egypt. Egypt is a type of sin. It's a type of bondage. Just like in the world today. That's why he can call us out of the world, out of bondage, because he paid the redemption price. So he is able to call us out of the world, and it's our life. He lives his life through us. You're understanding that if you have faith to believe that he redeemed you, that's where the faith comes in. That's where that gift of faith comes in. By grace are ye saved through faith. So that it's not a great amount of faith you have 
a little faith is what it is that you actually believe that this is what he did, that he died to put you back in right standing with God, that you've been reconciled to God through him. Listen at this in Exodus 13, chapter 11 through the 13th verse. Uh, I'll read the Amplified Version. I think I'll read the Amplified Version. I got all three of them here. It says, Now it shall be when the Lord brings you into the land of Canaan, as he swore to you and you and your fathers, and gives it to you. So this was after the 400 and some years in bondage in Egypt, because it wasn't ready during the time of uh, their Jacob's sojourn that earlier, and uh, when he promised it to Abraham that they was go- his people was going to be slaves in Egypt some 400 and some some years, but he was going to bring them back to that land where he redeemed them. He says, as he swore to you and your fathers and gives it to you, you shall set apart and dedicate to the Lord all that first opens the womb. All the firstborn males of your livestock shall be the Lord's. Every firstborn of a donkey you shall redeem by substituting a lamb as a sacrifice for it. But if you do not wish to redeem it, then you shall break its neck, and every firstborn among your sons you shall redeem that he is buy back from with a suitable sacrifice that would be with a lamb. You would buy the son back. Uh, the Living Bible reads, it's, I'll read the whole thing there from the Living Bible, uh, from the 11th verse to the 16th verse, to where an explanation to why you tell your children why the firstborn is having to be brought back, why the redemption act has to be enacted. He says, so celebrate the event annually in late March and remember when the Lord brings you into the land he promised to your ancestors long ago. Where the Canaanites are now living, all firstborn sons and firstborn male animals belong to the Lord and you shall give them to him. A firstborn donkey may be purchased back from the Lord in exchange for a lamb or a baby goat. But if you decide not to trade, the donkey shall be killed. However, you must buy, you must buy back your born firstborn sons. He didn't believe in human sacrifice. Now. You couldn't break your sons. Think you couldn't kill the son. You had to redeem that firstborn son. We're the first fruits of the Lord. We're redeemed. He buys us back. We're the redemption, those that are redeemed of the Lord. His blood is what purchased us back. It bought us out of slavery. That's the church. And in the future, when your children ask you, what is this all about? You shall tell them, with mighty miracles, Jehovah brought us out of Egypt from our slavery. Uh, Pharaoh wouldn't let us go, so Jehovah killed all the firstborn males throughout the land of Egypt, both of men and animals. That is why we now give all the firstborn males to the Lord, except all the eldest sons are always bought back. So now you know the reasons of that ritual, that ceremonial ritual. But we are not under the ordinance, the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, has been wiped away in Christ. He, he, he paid that sacrifice. He removed all those obstacles to him to being reconciled to God. That's Jew and Gentile. We all one in Christ. <clears throat> Again, I say this celebration shall identify you as God's people, just as much as if his brand of ownership were placed upon your foreheads. It is a reminder that the Lord brought us out of Egypt with great power. The word redeem means buy back. You remember they used to have green stamps or something like that, S&H green stamps, and you would get a book of stamps or whatever and get so many books you would go get a toasters or, or whatever. It's a redemption. You redeem those for actual merchandise. If you take an object to the pawn shop or something, a pawn shop somewhere or whatever, you pawn it or whatever, they hold a certificate on it of ownership until you come back, you know, usually two or three months, if you don't come back, they sell the item. But they hold that certificate, whereas you come back and 
pay back with interest what you've given to them, you come back to redeem that item that they were in ownership of, that they had that was yours, and you buying it back. What Satan had us, we were in bondage. We were in sin. Christ bought us back. It, if a family's firstborn donkey was critical to their livelihood, they could buy it back from God by offering a lamb in its place. Now, of course, God, like I said, didn't take literal human sacrifices, but you had to redeem the son back from God. Uh, that, too, was, like I said, he was our perpetuation. So all of our children are redeemed through, through him. They too were being brought back by means of a lamb sacrifice, but that lamb was the lamb of God that we were all purchased that one lamb. That's how significant the blood of Jesus was that it covered all mankind. Uh, we read and studied the story of Boaz. You remember the book of Ruth that had Boaz in there. Boaz was a type of Christ. He was a type of kinsman redeemer. He was a type of kinsman redeemer. You remember the Goel. In some instances that Goel was the redeemer of the first blood. If someone was killed, he was called the avenger of blood. If that person didn't make it to a city of refuge or whatever, that Goel would hunt him down and kill him. You know, he would murder, you know, kill him for taking the life that he had because he was over the family. He was the kinsman redeemer. Now the Hebrew term avenger is goel, which has fascinating ramifications when appearing in other contexts, not just in that context of the kinsman redeemer that was taking up if someone had been killed that was headed in the killer of the person who had committed this crime was headed to a city of refuge or something and the goel called this fugitive. The other context can be translated as a redeem, a redeemer. So Boaz was a goel, he was a redeemer. In the book of Ruth it is translated redeemed seven times, that word goel. Boaz was Ruth's redeemer. He was Ruth's redeemer. The redeemer was the one who stood for his family in order to protect its rights protect its rights. Ruth was married to one of Naomi's sons. There was an airship that was involved in the property that was left behind when Ruth and her husband went to the land of Moab and they died in Moab, both the sons and the husband and the daughters-in-law was going to come back, but the other one, Oprah, turned back, but Ruth came back with Naomi. She says, your God will be my God, and your people, my people. The Redeemer was the one who stood for his family in order to protect the rights of the family. That's what the Redeemer was. That's what Christ is. He protects the, our rights. He's our Redeemer. He tells us in Isaiah 44, I am the Redeemer. I have redeemed you. You are the redeemed. Boaz protected the rights of his family in behalf of Ruth and Naomi due to Naomi's husband's death. He was the family's avenger. So you remember he stood in the city, at the city gate, at the head of the gate, uh, as it was typical in that culture during that time. And it had a lot of witnesses. Everybody there was a witness, but normally it was the men who sat in the seat, and that was the council of the city that was witnessing what Boaz was doing. You remember he went to the nearer kinsman. There was a nearer kinsman than Boaz, but Boaz put it to him about the redemption of the property of Ruth. That's the one who took off his shoe latched his shoe and gave it to Boaz. Boaz was redeeming the property from him that he was redeeming Ruth and Naomi and yet the stipulations of that covenant. But we see witness to all of the people that probably was 
more than just those 10 men that sit at the gates of the city since that was the entrance of the city and a lot of people came in at that point in, in that place. The idea of these witnesses observed the negotiations and transactions of the sandal between Boaz and that unnamed kinsman that said he couldn't he couldn't do it because it would mar his inheritance. It would hinder his inheritance because he had to get Ruth and Naomi and with his sons and things and his family, he had to raise up his through Ruth and you, you understand what I'm saying. Ruth had, was going to have to have children. He had the real children through Ruth, but that was going to be named for the near kinsman. Right. But he says, if there were ever a need for proof that Boaz had indeed jumped through all the legal hoops, all of these witnesses was there, to, and he had the right to procure the land of Elimelech. That was the one who had died but had left these two widows there. You know, it was different with women. Moses dealt with, I think it was Hogler and two or three of the other women that didn't have any brothers that Moses dealt with their inheritance. So there's a legal aspect here. Christ was, that's why he had to be born as a man to inherit the earth. He inherited those biological rights through Joseph. In other words, by being Joseph, Joseph adopted him. That was Joseph's son. He inherited the biological rights to the earth as a man because spirit, a spirit is not legal in the earth. He didn't have the blood of man. He had the blood of the woman, but he had sinless blood. He was born a begotten of the father, so... Joseph just gave, he was entitled to the legal rights of the earth, the biological rights, whereas he was born of woman. So that which was born of the Holy Ghost, the Holy Spirit. Now, uh, these witnesses, and we have witnesses here, and to verify all of the witnesses, and the apostles was there as witnesses for Jesus Christ, and we talk about witness last week, and in this chapter, we'll talk about witness also, that he says, you are my witnesses. Mm-hmm. As to what he had said, God says, I am the creator of all the earth. He's the creator. He's the first and he's the last. So we are witnesses of they were witness, just like Isaiah in his prophecy. All of that he said, God says, all of the things that has been, I have told you before they happened that they were going to happen. And I told you through the prophets, all of this has happened. No other people or no other God can do that. He says, bring forth your witnesses. I have witnesses that I had told you that this was going to be. And as witnesses, that's what we're to do to witness as to what's going on. These people were witnesses. Jesus had the apostles as his witnesses. And their voice was going to go out throughout the earth that he had finished that work that God had given him to do. Now what happened here is Ruth uh, is very interested in the fact that Boaz is a type of Christ. Boaz chooses ten elders, Jews respected men of the town to witness what he did. Remember since this took place in Bethlehem that, you know, these were probably ten people to David, you know since it took place, you remember, because Ruth had came back to Bethlehem. And like I said, Boaz is a type of Christ because he actually was David's great-great-grandfather. Because, you remember, Boaz was this Goel, but Ruth was a Moabitess. And so that put the lineage through Boaz. Okay? Now, let's keep on going. In fact, uh, he was of that family of of Judah, and I don't want to get in the Tamar and Perez and all of them, but he actually was David's great-grandfather. Okay. 
Boaz took ten of them, ten men whose eyewitness testimonies could not be gainsaid in any way, and these men then witnessed his redemption of the land and of fruit. Now, what is interesting is that Jesus did the exact same thing, except that he came and chose twelve men that were apostles. The twelve that he chose, men of Judah from Galilee, the twelve apostles. Those was witnesses. And you remember when they lost Judas, they want, they needed to get one more witness. They had to have another witness, the twelve apostles. There. And I think Paul was that apostle. I don't think the one that Peter, Matthias, and the other one that they cast lots for, I think, like Paul said, Jesus had chosen him out of due time. And Scripture says about taking the place of the one that was lost you know nothing is a surprise in scripture so I don't know about Peter and them casting lots for that I think Paul was that twelfth apostle Uh, they would do the same for him telling all who would hear that he indeed had redeemed his people that's what the gospel that's the redemptive story that we've been redeemed by the blood of this man that this shed blood had redeemed them of the whole earth. In other words, the whole earth was going to be all this promises that was promised to Abraham. He's that promised seed, and he had redeemed the people. So now that you have faith in that, the faith that leads to redemption. See, that faith in redemption, that's a different, like I was telling you about the different types of faith, of the different faiths, but this actually happened. That's what your faith is. We have faith in that, that he had redeemed us. We can't see it, but he's the object of our faith. It's not the strength. You remember I told you, it wasn't the amount of faith. He says, if you have faith as a mustard seed, well, it's the amount of faith he had given us by his word. Faith cometh by hearing the word of God. So our faith is in the word of God that we had heard but he's the object of that faith. That's the object of the faith that we had re- been redeemed through his blood. Blessed are those who hadn't seen them. Luke 12, 24 through 49 shows that this is exactly what had happened. Uh, and he said in the word and unto them, these are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you that all things must be fulfilled which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and in the Psalms concerning me. Then opened he their understanding that they might understand the scriptures and said unto them, Thus it is written, Thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead the third day and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations beginning at Jerusalem. We keep telling that story. We part of the ones. You remember I told you he charged Timothy to preach the word. No variations or deviations in that story now. That's why I say Christmas and Easter, all of those are variations and deviations in that story. Because in the Easter story, we don't have a three-day resurrection. And he said to them, he says, the only sign that would be given to this adulterous generation that I'll be as the prophet Jonah was, that I'll be in the that he was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights, I'll be in the heart of the earth three days and three nights. That throws out Good Friday and resurrection. Suddenly. We we must not be tossed about by every wind of doctrine. To be redeemed, you remember I told you about cultivating. The gospel has to penetrate. He's pouring his spirit out. And if you diligently seek in the truth, he'll show us, he'll reveal us the truth. We have to stand in that truth. We have to proclaim it from the mountaintops. What he tells us in secret, what he revealed to us in our bed in, in dreams, however, we're supposed to scream it from the mountaintop. Preach the word, preach this gospel. 
give a greater understanding of it. It should go into all the world. He says, and you are witnesses of these things. And behold, I send the promise of my father upon you. But tarry ye in the city of Jerusalem until you be endued with power from on high. That power from on high came, as we told you yesterday, when he said, I'll pour out my spirit upon all flesh. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your men will dream dreams. Peter said, this is what was prophesied by the prophet Joel. That's what he spoke on the day of Pentecost. That those wasn't drunk, drunk, but it was that the spirit was falling upon him. He's pouring out of his spirit. Once we get this, we are his witnesses. As a witness, we need to tell what our testimony is very important. It's pertinent. It may save someone else. We have to offer up of the hope that lieth in us. We offer to tell the reason of this hope that we had been reconciled, that Christ had died, he'd shed his blood to reconcile us back unto God. Now while the normal legal idea of witnessing appears in the New Testament, Jesus makes use of it to confirm the facts of his life and death to the whole world through his witness, the apostles. That's why we use what they say, the apostle creed, the apostolic doctrine. And that's what we do, the death, burial, and resurrection. Here's another analogy that he uses here. In Ezekiel, the 16th chapter, in the 8th verse, I got two versions here. I, I seldom read the King James to you because all of all of y'all have a King James Bible, but some don't possess a living Bible or amplified Bible. You know, and I know it's good to have the Schofield and the Ryrie and all of the other versions, the Phillips, all of those are good versions, but the NIV is. It's good in some instances. It's not the best. The American Standard, all of those. And if you have a computer, most a lot of websites, you'll have the parallel Bibles and you'll be able to read several different versions of it. Sometimes it opens up a little bit more reading those different versions. Ezekiel 16 and 8 says, Then I passed by you again, and now you have to read the first few verses because earlier he had passed by this in when they were in their blood when they were first born. When this first happened, read Ezekiel chapter 16, 1 through 7. But this is later when they're, they're of age to be married. When they're of age to be married. Then I passed by you again and looked upon you. Behold, you were maturing in the time of love, at, and at the time of love, for I spread my skirt over you and covered your nakedness. Yes, I swore an oath to you and entered into a covenant with you, says the Lord God, and you became mine. Kind of reminds you of Boaz covering Ruth with her skirt, with his skirt there. Later. Living says, later when I passed by and saw you again, you were old enough for marriage, and I wrapped my cloak around you to, to you to legally declare my marriage vows. I signed a covenant with you, and you became mine. The young woman is involved in marriage, and that was the custom in the Old Testament, and in that society, the covering with a cloak, because as with Ruth and Boaz, hold on, let me finish what I'm doing now. Go on the Ruth and Boaz. Within the context, she be, she begins as a type of Jerusalem, the first birth, the first one. In other words, Jerusalem was first, so gradually it became a type for all Israel. But then later on, within the fullness of the Bible, the symbolism came to apply all the way to include the church and the new covenant. You remember the new covenant in the book of Jeremiah, the 31st through the 34th chapter, that new covenant, that symbolism came to cover all that, the whole aspects of that, because the Gentiles was always in sight of this marriage covenant. 
and with the death of him on the cross and the putting away the bill of divorcement of Israel, it makes it all legal for him to have a bride, a Gentile bride, because as as with a bill of divorcement for Israel and him by him dying, that then he's free to marry another. In other words, we can be married to Christ at then at that time because their God they crucified their God. You remember they chose Caesar as their God. They say they have no God but Caesar. They rejected God. Now Jesus Christ is all of our gods. That's the object that always has been there. <clears throat> it clearly states you became mine in verse eight of that chapter eight verse of chapter sixteen. That's why I was just pull that verse out of there. The statement, I spread my wing over you, is a symbolism of caring protection. And we see that in the Psalms and different places. Uh, and even in the New Testament, when Jesus says, as a chick, that they would gather them around on the wing. If an eagle or some bird saw a danger to the chicks, they would open up the wings and all the little chicklets would come next to the mother hen and she would cover them with her wings or whatever giving you an analogy of what Christ did for us he is our covering we have to be covered by the blood you remember the blood on the doorpost of the sacrificial lamb that night if you didn't have that blood you wasn't under the blood it can also imply what Boaz did in accepting Ruth when at Naomi's bold suggestion that she came that night, she didn't know about Jewish customs, but having Naomi as a mother-in-law, and she saw what Boaz was doing for her with the extra grain and all of the things, told her to stay in that field and reap. Then she told her to dress up or whatever. Well, she could have been placed in the position of a harlot or a prostitute, because that's what would come to the threshing flow at some time during reaping season or whatever. But she came the way Boaz was, and Boaz did the right thing. He was like Christ, just like Joseph did the right thing with Mary. Remember, Joseph was a type of Christ. He did the right thing. He married Mary. He was he was her protector. You remember, that's, that's how that came about, that Jesus, the Holy Ghost, says, don't be afraid to marry Mary. So Ruth was willing to pay the price of possibly losing her reputation by being perceived as a prostitute because the community could have interpreted what she did as brazenly throwing herself at Boaz. And if it would have been out with Mary about with Joseph, then they could have said, well, even the Pharisees said, well, we wasn't born of fornication. So they were slurring her name and talking about her. She was innocent. What she had conceived was of the Holy Ghost. She didn't know a man, but her reputation had been scarred. And they even told Jesus and told him that he was born of fornication. So that's why when God told David he had caused his name to be blaspheming among the Gentiles, but because people knew what he had did with Uriah and that Solomon eventually, that's why he had the problem with women that he did because he did worse than what his father did. If we do bad, our children could do worse. That's why we pray for our children and live a godly life and he said he'll pour out his spirit upon our children and things. That's why we have to live closer to the Lord as that example. But Boaz being a just man, also a type of Christ, just like Joseph was a just man, a type of Christ. David was a type of Christ. He took the hint properly and redeemed Ruth to be his wife, and he covered her just like Joseph married Mary. He didn't put her away. He had faith. He believed God. The old covenant was a marriage covenant, and it prefigures the new covenant, which also is a marriage covenant. Now, several verses confirm that the church, as Christ's bride, is his purchased possession, that he had redeemed us, he had bought us back. We're the purchased possession. And you remember the 
woman that had sweeped and found the coin. We were lost, but now we're found. We were lost, but now we were found. And unless we know we were lost, we don't know uh, the can't glory in, in being found. That's why I say we have to first get lost before we can be found. The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians six nineteen through 20, Or do you not know that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and you are not your own? For you were bought at a price, and therefore glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. You no longer own your body. You had been purchased by the blood of Christ. You, you're a bondservant of him. You can't no longer do what you want with your body. He had placed us, and that's why Paul says he was striving to present us as a chaste virgin. Notice yesterday when I was talking, he says, he had redeemed them. He says, now turn unto me, turn back unto me. We were lost. We were turned away. We were walking in the world. We're going to either address this New Testament wise coming out of the Old Testament. 1 Corinthians 7, 22 and 23 says, If the Lord calls you and you are a slave, remember that Christ has set you free from the awful power of sin. And if he has called you and you are you are not free, uh, let me see. If the Lord calls you and you are a slave, remember that Christ has set you free from the awful power of sin. And if he has called you and you are free, remember that you are now a slave of Christ. Now, he didn't upset the apple cart in culture, in the Roman culture, in the culture of that day, and he didn't abolish slavery. You remember Paul with Onesiphorus in Philemon, that Onesiphorus had ran away and he told him to return, but he freed us from sin. Okay? Yes. He freed us from sin. Now those that were already free, that was free from sin, that were in liberty, he says, but now you are a slave of Jesus Christ. You, you're a bond servant of Jesus Christ. Those that are thinking you're free, you still in bondage to Christ. In other words, as I tell you the book about Martin Luther, about the bondage of the will. You're in bondage to Satan and sin, or you're in bondage to Jesus Christ. Yes. There's no such thing as free will. You're in bondage to one of the two. Jesus says, are you either for me or against me? Oh, yes. You have been bought and paid for by Christ, so you belong to him. Be free now from all these earthly prides and fears. Second Peter 2 and 1 says, But there were false prophets too in those days, just as there will be false teachers among you. They will cleverly tell you you lies about God turning against even the master who bought them. But theirs will be a swift and terrible end. You remember I told you there's different doctrines and professions of faith being preached by those that God had bought with a price they're preaching on the doctrine. And I've told you about Christmas and Easter and different things. And some of those things will bring you into bondage. He says there were false prophets that they were going against. It's always been that false prophet of the false that was in even back in Noah's time. Noah was a preacher of righteousness, but there was some other preachers of other things. And that's why it says the sons of God married the daughters of men. It wasn't angels or anything. These were men of the world, or people of the world. These verses are especially clear regarding the legal realities involved in this relationship. The price of our redemption from slavery to Satan in this world has been paid by Christ when he shed his blood. So we're no longer in bondage. We're free from sin. He came so that we would be free from sin by grace, by God's grace, He freed us from all of this. So shall we continue in sin that grace shall abound? God forbid. 
so we shouldn't yield our members since we have been redeemed. We should use the gift of God to, to cleanse it. And that's a whole different teaching that I'll teach it some other time about this cleansing. And we were talking about being washed by the word the other day. The awesome cost of salvation. It cost him his life. It cost Christ his life. Yes. And that's what it did. Ephesians 1, 6-7. Ephesians 1, 6-7. Uh, to the praise of his glorious grace and favor which he so freely bestowed on us in the beloved that is in his son Jesus Christ in him we have redemption that is our deliverance and salvation is in Jesus Christ it's in Jesus Christ our deliverance in other words that process of salvation and the process, in other words, he delivered us from sin and gave us salvation, but it's a process. We were redeemed, but the full redemption hadn't come because our bodies had been completely re- redeemed. We still have the ravages of sin in our body. Paul had to constantly fight that. We'll see that in Romans, the, I think it's the seventh chapter. 27 through the 23rd through the 29th verse or something like that. Now, in him we have redemption through his blood, which paid the penalty for our sin and resulted in the forgiveness and complete pardon of sin. In his blood, the complete forgiveness and pardon of sin set us free. All of that was what? By the blood. By the blood of the Lamb. It says, in accordance with the riches of his grace, the living says, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein he had made us accepted in the beloved, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sin according to the riches of God. That's the King James Version. So in him, all of this is in Christ. You remember I told you, it's not the faith. He's the object of our faith. But he is faith in him and having the faith of Christ. Yes. But he's that object of faith. It's, it's not our faith. We have the object. We see that. That's what carries us through. Christ is. Christ is the source of all of this. In him, all of this is in him. That's why we have to abide in him. We have to stay in Christ. Redemption implies the payment of a of a ransom. Redemption implies the payment of a ransom. We have been redeemed or bought back by the blood of the Lamb. Through His blood reminds us that making the new covenant cost Him His life. First Corinthians eleven and twenty five. We'll do that Saturday, okay? We'll do that Saturday. For it says. We have the cup there, and after the same manner, he also took the cup when he had supped, saying, This cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as oft as ye drink it in remembrance of me. And we drink of that cup. We'll be drinking of that cup this coming Saturday, the Sabbath day. Uh, remind me, I wanted to tell you, Something about somebody wanting to make a movie or something, but just hold on. I forget, I write it down. Forgiveness here, when he says for the forgiveness of sin, forgiveness here suggests to be loosened from bondage. He redeemed us from, we're no longer under bondage to Satan. He can't make us do anything. We, we, we have that authority and power, but it's a walk of faith. We have to come of growing faith. We have to grow in the Spirit. We have to continue being filled by the Spirit. You remember he says be full of the Spirit or be drunk with the Spirit? But it's other things we have to do. Because you remember when he had went away and was somewhere else and when he came back from the transfiguration, the disciples was arguing, this man was arguing, the disciples was going about and this man came to Jesus and he says, look, can you help my son? He cast himself into the fire 
and all of this and he's possessed by demons. I went to your apostles, to your disciples, and they couldn't cast him out. And Jesus cast him out. But when they were inside, they were talking to Jesus, and they asked why they couldn't come cast him out. He says, this kind coming out by fasting and prayer. So you have a lot of different things going on. And that's what I was telling you the other day. We have to pray. We have to fast. We have to be strengthened in the Lord. And it's not, we can't just be dogmatic in one thing. It's the whole, whole woven canon of God. We have to be walking in His Word. That's why we have to be taught His Word. The Greek word pitches of somebody who is tied up by cords of rope. You remember Lazarus. Lazarus died and he was in the grave. But he was in bondage. You remember I told you, death, we're in bondage to Satan, and the wages of sin is death. Jesus gave him life. He says, Lazarus, come forth. But he was still bound in the grave clothes. He says, loose him and let him go. That's why the Pharisees was upset with Jesus when he healed a paralytic. He says, your sins has been forgiven. But then they says, this man blaspheming God. Who could forgive sin but God? And Jesus said, what is it easier to save you that sin be forgiven or rise up and walk? He had the whole package, you see. That takes a lot for, for us to tell somebody that sins be forgiven. We don't know if that was so or not. But then we will know it's so if we do like Peter says, I don't have silver or gold, but that I have rise up and walk as Jesus told the paralytic have have we as Christians been loosened from a political entity as the Israelites was redeemed from from Egypt no not really because you know politics in the world and things that a lot of the church tell you don't get involved in these politics and that's the problem we see today the Republicans moving toward Christian nationalism. People think, well, Republican, that means he's a Christian. No, it doesn't. No, it doesn't. A political aff- affiliation may mean the very opposite of that, that you didn't got entangled in the world's affairs, that you think that the government or that a Christian could run this world. Why would a Christian be running a world that's going to be destroyed? Didn't he say this world is be destroyed and come out of the world. So these people that's believing in national Christianism, Christianity is talking a, a false Christ. These are antichrists. This is a false Jesus. This is another Jesus. It's not a political entity. You don't get entangled in these world's affairs. Were we in bondage to another human being? Well, no. We was. Have we been freed from sin? Yes. That's what he was. That's the forgiveness. That's the freedom. That's liberty in Christ Jesus. That is what held us in bondage. It was sin. See, mankind, he'll try to bind you, but he can't have no power to bind you. The word translated sins is parapatoma, which indicates deviation from the right path. A deviation from the right path. We've been held bondage by our deviations from the right path. We followed Adam. We've erred from the faith. It's all the way from the time of Adam that disobedience. It's in us. It's in our flesh. And that's what I say. It's not just Satan. The, the flesh and blood, the carnal is enmity against God. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God. That's why we must put the flesh to death. We must die daily. A, car- a carnality is against God. We have been held in bondage by our deviations from the right path, but now we have been loosed or freed from that bondage according to His grace. We've been loosed. And I told you this was a process. It's a faith process 
walk, a walk of faith, living a life of faith. Ephesians 2, 1 through 3, Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 says, And you had he quickened who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in time past ye walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in time past in the lust of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. And you he made alive, which was spiritually dead. That was the King James. The Amplified said, You were spiritually dead, separated from him because of transgressions and sins. So we were all dead. We were like animals. We were living, but not realizing we were walking in darkness. We were walking as the course of everyone in the world. But then it was his, the ones that he chose, the ones that he quickened, he made alive, he made spiritually alive. Those are the ones that are redeemed, are being bought back. Those are the ones that are in the process of salvation, of the process of redeeming, that redemptive process. He says, in which you once walked. You once walked. You're not walking in that now because you're turning unto God. You're overcoming sin. That's why he's in our lives. You are following the ways of this present world, uh, influenced by this present world, in accordance with the prince of the power of the air, that is Satan, the god of this world. The spirit who now at work in the children of disobedience, unbelieving those who fought against the purposes of God. I also have the other version there. Sin is generated through the inspiration and persuasion of the living and malignant prince of the power of the air. Now because of sin's source, it lies in a living being. The Bible considers it a dynamic rather than a static presence. And it says in verse 1, we were dead in trespasses and sin. We were in darkness. We didn't know God. Paul said, I was dead once, and sin entered, and I died again. See, he was revived by Christ. The Word of God makes us alive. Remember when he passed by us with his covering, and he married us? He brought us into his body. Now that body, like I said, I can't do this in one session. We'll have to continue this. But God calls things exactly as the way they appear from his point of view. Up until the time of our calling, we thought we were alive, but that is how wrong we were. We, our thoughts were not like his thoughts. Our ways are not like his ways. So those of us who try to save our life could lose our life because we're down here in darkness and we're trying to gain the world. That's why I say Christian nationalism is in blindness because you're trying to run a world that's going over the cliff. You helping run it over the cliff. It's doomed. Christ had already said it was doomed. There's a new heaven and a new earth being made. The kingdom of God, it's among us. It's within us. This is coming about, so it's not a a, a giant revival in some... uh, left behind where they get snatched out of here or anything. This is a thing that's a walking and a living thing that shall appear suddenly because when Christ comes, you see in the book of Daniel, that stone that smote the mountain, it's becoming a, a taking the whole earth. The word of God, the people of God are permeating the whole earth. It's on this earth, not another earth, on this earth. The Davidic kingdom, the millennial reign, will be here on this earth. Yes. So they have to teach another doctrine, a dissolution, a destruction of all the, the world and everything that's here. That's not biblical. That's a foreign teaching to Bible teaching. God considers sin to have already killed us, but in his mercy he made us alive so that we could overcome it. That's why he keeps telling us to be overcomers, because the rest of us are dead already. 
you already condemned. So God sees us as we are, but he can't see us as we are. He's seeing his son. He sees Christ in us. He, he sees Christ. When he looks at us, he sees the complete product, the ones who were made alive. But until then, you're dead because he sees things as they are. But those of us that he had quickened and made alive, we, we don't follow the same course as the world, those that are walking in darkness, because we've been redeemed and we no longer live after the world. we in the world, but not of the world. We don't live after the things of the world. Amen. Now, of course, we were alive as far as an animal life concerned, but dead to the kind that God desires us to have. We didn't have holiness. We didn't have righteousness. We were dead to holiness and a spiritual life because he had closed us off from the tree of life. He says, bar from that tree. Let us throw man out of the garden unless he eat of the tree and live forever. But see, then you have somebody come in and preach this immortal soul by people dying and they're up in heaven with Jesus looking down upon us and all of these other doctrines enter in. That's not biblical doctrines. A corpse is insensible. It cannot see, hear, smell, or touch, or taste anything. The what is it? Solomon in Proverbs says, The dead knoweth nothing. Oh, it's an Ecclesiastes. Didn't Peter says that David was dead in his sepulchre? See, but they preach that your loved one is looking down upon you from heaven. Though that's foreign teaching to the scriptures now. So we're in regard to the beauty of holiness and godly spiritual life. Sin is not something the ministry invented to hold people in its enthrall. The first sentence of Ephesians 2 and 1 includes the term trespasses and sins. We were dead in both trespasses and sin. Both of which illustrate simply and clearly why sin is such a universal problem. Because it's transgression against God. And that's what all men are, in transgressions against God. The world lies in darkness. And we're the lights of the world. We're the lights of the world. You remember I was talking about the word was word with made flesh? But then he says about Jesus was the light and now we're the lights of the world. Trespass, also that word in there, trespass, it means to go off a path or fall or slip aside. When applied to a moral or ethical issue, it means to deviate from the right right way, to wander from a standard. That's why each day we pray because we're sinful people and we pray God forgive us of our transgression as we forgive against those who transgress against us. Because we continually to transgress but gradually we are overcoming. We are being perfected in Christ Jesus. We have to start overcoming some of these things to grow into perfection, to be without a spot or a blemish. We can't continue to see, sin these same old sins. We have to get stronger and, and start overcoming a lot of these things. Yes. Sin is translated from homartia, homothia, a military term, that means to miss the mark or to fail to achieve a bullseye. In terms of morality and ethics, it means to fail of one's purpose. And remember I say God had purposed us for good works and, he, and we start to see his purpose for us when we are born again, when we are redeemed. He shows us his purpose and we start to walk in that purpose why are we here? We start realizing and we walk in our calling for which he had purposed us for. But since we were in transgression, we were in sins, we couldn't see that. We were blinded. But that's why Asaph said, until he came in the house of the God of God and he seen the end of the wicked, that he had almost slipped. So we were on the wrong path. We we went wrong. We fail to reach a standard uh, idea God has for us. The New Testament always used homartia in a moral and ethical sense, whether in commission, omission, thought, feeling, word, or deed. Now, Wednesday, I'll pick up from here.
redemption as a process because I keep telling you redemption is a process. We are redeemed, but it's not a complete action. It's like salvation is a process, but we have been saved. I keep telling you about processes in life. Okay? So we will pick up redemption as a process, and we'll start there Wednesday. Heavenly Father,